Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to Romaniacs in another very strange week for Britain. At the time of recording, Boris Johnson was still in intensive care, but reported to be stable, not using a ventilator. Obviously, we have more political differences than I can list, but we hope he recovers quickly and completely, just like everyone who's suffering from COVID-19. If that includes you or anyone you know, then you have our best wishes. A big thank you to everyone who joined us for the Bunker vs. Romaniacs live stream last Thursday. It was a great success, aside from a few of the neo-Nazi trolls who make the internet such fun. <laughs> and you, you can get the video and audio now on our Patreon page. We're planning another one in the next few weeks, so keep an eye on social media and Patreon. Let's say hello to the panel. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello. Do you get the sense the Boris Johnson's condition has changed how sort of the country in general is thinking about covid a uh, prime minister in intensive care is unnerving whatever your political allegiance is. Yeah, it is right. And it's like, um, you know what, it's, this is a weird comparison. And like, it sort of reminded me, um, it was like an old war TV series. I think it was like Field of Dream, Band of Brothers, I don't know, something like that. And there was like a scene where they're all, you know, coming under fire and he, he's trying to get to like a sort of trench area where his two mates are and they're sort of putting in, telling him to come over. And then that area gets bombed as well. And he sort of realizes there's no safe space. And it's sort of, I think like the, the impact on me was quite similar to that. It just sort of, there's, there's some part of you that thinks on some level that like, you know, the prime minister, like if there's a nuclear war, the prime minister will be going down to a bunker somewhere. He'll be all right. You know, he'll be with the queen or whatever and, and they'll survive. Whereas when they get the virus, you, you really do sort of, it actually does impact on you thinking there really is no one, no one that is safe from this thing. The reality of course is actually that he's probably more vulnerable to it than anyone. Cause in that kind of job, you are going to be coming in contact with an awful lot of people. So it's actually the reverse of what I'm saying, but that's not how we tend to think about these things. And I suspect, I mean, a lot of it was just genuine goodwill that no matter what you think of him, you know, you don't want anyone to have this thing. I think another part is you just, it does properly hit at home. Of if he can get it, anyone can get it. Yeah. You do kind of feel like there's this sort of special power of privilege that if you've got a sort of enough sort of money influence, whatever, that there's some kind of special syringe yeah. that a private yeah. doctor can give you. <laughs> and, and there is, you know, and there, there, there isn't, there isn't even, you know, the richest, most powerful people in the world do not have some kind of a shortcut out of this. Mm -hmm. Coming in from Mykonos is Alex Andreu, fresh from his interview on the Bunker Daily with his close celebrity friend, Nigella Lawson. Hello, Alex. Hello. <laughs> um, the, I mean, there, there have been a few people um, who's so very angry with Johnson? He was suggesting that sort of he, he deserved this. Do you think some of this anger comes from a misunderstanding of the original sort of herd immunity strategy? Because I don't think it's ever really been fully explained. And I do see a lot of people, uh, not conspiracy theorists really, but a lot of people seem to think that Johnson and Cummings kind of deliberately ignored all medical advice and banked on on a, on a large number of people dying so that we could achieve herd immunity. We all read this week's superb Reuters piece about how the decisions were made. Um, but do you think that there is a kind of, for people that don't trust Johnson and Cummings already, that there is just a kind of, that actually it's very unclear why the advice and the strategy changed? I think the reason that initial herd immunity policy is difficult to understand and it's incomprehensible is because people are trying to interpret it through their own prism. To understand why they went for that strategy and why that strategy then changed, you need to analyze it through the economic prism. You need to come at it from an economic point of view. This is a conservative government, and their primary instinct in a crisis situation is to protect the economy. It's not to protect people. I'm not saying this to be contentious. Uh, th this is borne out by 
10 years of austerity. Um, people died because of the cuts to benefits and the cuts to services and the cuts to the NHS and the cuts to the police. Um, so the point of departure would be what is the thing that causes least damage to the economy? And if you start with that and then you have you, you have them presented with several options, one of which um, promises to uh, shield the economy as much as possible, albeit with a with a cost uh, to life, then you can see why their instinct would be to go for that. But they hadn't figured in the political uh, backlash, and so I think it's it's wrong to suggest that. Um, you know, they were aiming to kill loads of people. Um, they, they weren't not, but the point is that was a byproduct of their policy, which was to protect the economy. That was their primary knee-jerk reaction. And that's what happens when you have a, a sort of a, a government of financiers in charge rather than a government uh, that is humanist that is precisely the sort of calculation they will make. Well, we'll, we'll also look at some more angles of the, both the government's response uh, and also the response across Europe later. Our guest this week has a unique claim to fame. She was responsible for Labour's only gain in the 2019 election, winning the London seat of Putney for the party for the first time in 18 years. Fleur Anderson has had a long career in charity development work, including Christian Aid, Water Aid and the Jubilee Debt Campaign. Most recently, she ran community services for the young and elderly in her home borough of Wandsworth. She calls herself a bit of a bolshy person. When I see something going wrong that I think I could change, I try to step in. Hi, Fleur. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um, so you've actually had like a, a long, uh, impressive career for various charities, you know, taking you to various parts of the world. So, I mean, you were already making a, a difference. You were stepping in. What drew you at this point into, into party politics? Yeah, I think it's campaigning that I've done up to now, seeing where I'd like to change things from the debt campaign so over 20 years ago, all the three different campaigns around the world, but also locally. So the, the local council closed down my local children's centre and I campaigned against that. And that led to me becoming a local councillor. And then um, again, there's, there's, there's more to be done nationally and the opportunity to stand to be my local MP came up. Um, and I think women should stand up and, and uh, stand for positions of power. So I've done enough encouraging of other women to stand. So I thought I should get along and at least give it a go myself. So that finds me here. And you've done a lot of work around social care in your area. Obviously, NHS workers uh, are rightly getting a lot of praise. Um, what's, what's been happening to the care sector over the last few weeks? What are the, the main pressures there? Yes, I was running an older people's service um, in a local community centre before I became an MP. So my thoughts very much are with those wonderful older people who used to come into the lunch club and do all the different activities. That community centre, for example, has had to close down, um, can't continue, but um, everyone is being phoned and contacted um, and deliveries taken to them all the time. But there's a real issue about loneliness for older people in those circumstances, which is a real concern. Care homes, I've phoned around all the care homes um, and spoken to the um, managers who are doing a great job in the different care homes that we have. But they're really worried about the future. So we are, all of us, we're really concerned what's going to happen in the next even 10 days. Um, and care homes are at the front line of that. And those going into homes and caring for older people and for people who are disabled in their homes, they they are not not yet being... Um, having the same circumstances as those in the hospitals, but they will do. This will come. It will come out to the community far more. So there's a feeling of a fear, a fear of the unknown. Has everyone got the protection and equipment they need? What will be coming? That's that's the feeling that I get when I'm talking to workers in care homes. This week, we're going to talk about what happens when the Prime Minister can't govern anymore. Is Dominic Raab up to the task of deputising? And can the Conservatives keep their fratricidal instincts and instincts in check? Plus, Keir Starmer is finally elected to lead Labour. What does it mean for the future of the party and for the pro-EU bloc in the country? And as Europe tries to rescue its damaged economies, what's going on with corona bonds? And is this a threat to the survival of the EU itself? (laughs) 
During the daily press briefing in Westminster on Monday, Dominic Raab assured journalists that Boris Johnson was still able to coordinate the UK's fight against coronavirus from hospital. But a few hours later, it was revealed that the Prime Minister was in intensive care. Ian, just last week, we talked about how the press, uh, including the right-wing press, was turning on Johnson over the government's various errors. Assuming he recovers, is this wave of sympathy likely to affect uh, what kind of criticism feels appropriate for a while? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, of course, of course it will. I mean, and that goes in a couple of ways. I mean, the first one is just the natural human way. And, you know, this stuff has a long recovery period. I mean, my understanding is that really someone who's in intensive care with this, for each day they're there, it's probably sort of a week to recover, to come out of it, even at the point you get out you've still got an awful lot of time to get properly get back on your, your feet. But I think there's also something else, right, which is, it's hard to talk about this stuff, but you've got, you've got to do it. I mean, this is, you know, it's politics. That there, there is a sense that someone who has gone through it, who has experienced it, will have a certain authority in the manner in which they then manage it because they cannot be accused of, you know, not taking it seriously enough. You know, the response to that is, well, you know what, I, I did, I've had it, I know what this thing is like. And so it'll bring with it, I think, a new sense of authority for him on the other side of it when he comes out, t- together with t- together with the more human aspect of how he's treated on the basis of it. Well, talking of things which are unpleasant to contemplate, um, if for some reason he cannot return to work, do you agree with Nick Cohen's piece in The Spectator that there is basically zero appetite in the country for a fight to succeed him? Because that's the problem that we have in America, American politics, obviously, that there is a kind of an order of succession. In Britain, there isn't. The idea of having a, a, a Tory leadership race in the middle of a pandemic, is there a way, would there be any way around that? Yeah, it's insane. I mean, insane. To, and, and they wouldn't be... Th- I mean, they, they are aware that they're not going to want to do anything like that. The, the trouble is, you know, the figures who are there, I mean, as Alex was alluding to earlier, have not really been selected on merit. And this is one of the repercussions you get from that. When you select people because of their obedience and their ideological um, comparison to you, you don't get the best people when he hasn't got the best people. So the moment he's got Dominic Raab, who's there, I mean, Dominic Raab it looks like an animated human skull at the best of times, and now it looks like a particularly petrified animated human skull. Um, he, underneath him, you then have the Chancellor, and then after that, the Home Secretary. Now, the Chancellor has had a very good time so far, um, probably probably the person held in the highest esteem in cabinet, but he's extremely, I mean, extremely new. He's only been in that position for months. And below that, yeah, Pretty Patel, I mean, Pretty Patel, extraordinary, right? When was the last time you saw Pretty Patel? I mean, you've just had a period where the police have been handed powers that are unparalleled what, in the history of, of this country in the modern period? I mean, uh, I, they didn't, I don't think they had those powers during the Second World War. And yet we haven't even seen the Home Secretary. She hasn't been selected for any of those press conferences. We haven't seen her in any other capacity, which gives you some indication of the degree of confidence that Downing Street has in her. So they will know we don't want to have any kind of leadership problems right now. The country wouldn't tolerate it. But the second that things start going wrong, and that there starts being demanding questions asked of them, those dynamics are going to come into play, and it may be very hard to prevent that outcome, even if nobody really wants it. They have selected the team. They have appointed this team around them. And so there is an element already of of selection. And then you put that team into an environment that is just absolutely toxic in terms of um, you know, aides being marched out of 10 Downing Street because they were suspected of, you know, saying something against the government and uh, civil servants being traduced, destroyed, being briefed against in the press because someone may have suggested to Priti Patel that doing this de- deportation may be illegal. So, into that toxic environment where everyone is absolutely terrified to say anything that displeases the government or seems to go against the government in in any way, you assemble this group of people who are basically selected for being yes-men, for being sycophants. Then you can't be surprised that you're not getting clear, honest and brave advice. 
you you have eliminated the possibility of clear, honest, and brave advice the moment you started sacking people that gave you advice that was brave and honest, but that you disagreed with. And so you create an environment where everyone is telling you precisely what you want to hear, because to not do so is career-ending. So you've created an atmosphere of Pavlovian compliance, obedience, uh, and that is absolutely not conducive to getting um, clear, honest, direct advice. Flo, what does this mean for you as an opposition MP? When, when the kind of prime minister is so ill, what is a reasonable challenge to the government? What, what tone does one strike? Well, first to say that I absolutely wish him and his fiancée the best and um, for a full recovery. And I'm, like everyone else, I think I was shocked to hear that he'd gone into hospital. It was one of those moments when you realise how serious this whole thing is. Um, I was in the House of Commons when the school it was announced that the schools were going to close and there weren't, weren't going to be any A-level and GCSE exams. And we'd been talking about it for, say, for days up to then, but it was only during that announcement it really hit home to me. Oh, yes, this is a, such a serious thing. And I think that moment of Boris Johnson going into hospital was another moment for our country. And I really do hope he gets well and very quickly. And I think at the moment we wish him the best. But I would like to see in those um, press conferences that we've been talking about, I would like to see someone standing there who is as much as in charge as, as Boris was, who knows what's going on, who's got a plan. I don't mind who that is as long as I can be sure that they are running the country very well and that they are taking the best advice. And for me, it's very disconcerting to see different people every day um, and also to have a lot of questions about this three-week lockdown comes up, but we're not going to have a review. What does that mean? What's next? I'd like to see some more answers. And I think that people across the country are having those same questions. We're not putting them aside because Boris Johnson is ill. And I think we can ha hold those two together. We can absolutely wish the best for Boris Johnson and his recovery and for all those who are in hospital. And also we can still be asking the questions that the whole country is asking and that's the role of the opposition at the moment. Now, on to Labour. Keir Starmer is the new leader of the Labour Party and a new shadow cabinet has been assembled. Annalise Dodds is the new shadow chancellor. Nick Thomas-Simons is Shadow Home Secretary and leadership candidate Lisa Nandy has been given the Foreign Office brief, thus covering every town in the world. <laughs> <laughs> the carnival is over for Richard Bergen, Ian Lavery and all my faves. Um, Flo, it feels like a relief to have the contest over. There was a great sort of exhalation. Um, obviously, with so much else going on, do you think that... that that the timetable was too long. It seems to have been going on for uh, many years. <laughs> it does. I had to choose back in uh, the first week of January who I would support. That seems so <laughs> long ago. And then people started asking me, who am I going to support? And I said, well, I chose. I chose ages ago. <laughs> and it has been a long time. But in the scheme of things, if this is our leader for many, many years to come, and I hope so, then, then it's not so long. And to do it properly and to involve everyone and to do it right is the most important thing. And we did do that. And there was a convincing outcome. And we did not tear ourselves to bits at all during the contest. In fact, it was done in a way that I think did a real credit, served a real credit to the party. So it, it was long, but, but we got the right, we got there. We had a, a good contest at which people felt they were involved. No one felt left out. It was fair. Um, and so in retrospect, it's okay. And I'm just, and I do feel very relieved as well. Saturday could not have come soon enough, but it's, uh, it's good. And it, it feels like a new start. Um, even at this strange time to have a new start, uh, it feels good. Um, as the, we had our first parliamentary Labour Party meeting with Keir Starmer leading it yesterday. And now we can t to look ahead to the rest of this crisis and beyond as a united party, having done that part of our new contest and the election kind of wash up that felt like the last part of the election wash up in a way and now now we're looking ahead it was on zoom and it was very good it was very well done on zoom yes how many of you were there? the whole parliamentary party on zoom on one zoom oh, chat? yes yeah. jesus christ yes it's hard enough yeah. to navigate when there's five of you <laughs> <laughs> apparently it's a special kind of zoom 
So mm. I don't know what the difference is, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Special exactly. PLP Zoom elite. When we, we were all told as MPs that we couldn't use Zoom. And then we all saw that the cabinet had because there was the tweet where it tweeted out the cabinet, the number of the meeting. So and then we all said, well, the cab- if the cabinet are using Zoom, of course we can. So we've been given a special security Zoom. So, oh, yes. brilliant. Ian, um, almost as soon as, as, as the uh, announcement came out on Saturday, Mentum weighed in to say that it would kind of ensure that, that Starmer kept the faith, despite having endorsed Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, how much power do you think that the, the left, I mean, I hate just using the term the, the left, but say the Corbyn left, have to sort of either influence him or cause trouble uh, if they don't like the direction he's going in? Uh, Not very much on the latter, but I think they have quite a bit on the former. I mean, if you look at the people that he selected for the shadow cabinet, I mean, they seem to have two qualities. I mean, the first one is that they're pretty detailed policy people, uh, which reflects obviously his own strengths. Um, In in all of those cases, you look at them and think, yeah, this is the kind of person that goes line by line and knows how to weaponize policy. Um, The second is that they weren't really strongly associated with one side or the other. You know, so, I mean, obviously, because of my Twitter feed, is lots of people going, well, where's Yvette Cooper? Where's Hilary Benn? Uh, where's Jess Phillips? Jess Phillips, yeah. And, and I mean, it, this is, I, I hate, I don't like saying this, because it, it feels to me like, I mean, especially you take Jess Phillips's case, you know, this is someone who had the bravery over the last few years to say, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to say so publicly. I'm not just going to, you know, whisper it to journalists or, or in the tea rooms. I'm going to say it. And at the moment, she is now basically, I think, being penalized for that because the Starmer approach was to think, well, I want to keep everyone on board. So he mostly got rid of people who could be seen on one side or the other. And those he took on, so for instance, David Lammy, obviously very, very strong on Brexit, clearly critical of um, Corbyn's policy on that, especially for the first few years, always was one of those people that made sure he was never criticizing Corbyn directly. He didn't build up that hatred on the Corbyn wing that, say, for instance, Jess Phillips did. So you get included. And on that basis, it would suggest that Starmer really does mean what he said during the campaign of, I'm going to keep all these sides together. There'll be no more of this internal tribal fighting. And that means that the Corbyn guys have a very, very open door towards their attempts to push him uh, to influence one way or another as they keep on going forward, if they're sensible enough to take it, which they very well may not. Because there are some people on the Labour right who are sort of calling for, for quite some drastic actions to thwart the hard left in the future. But Starmer did run on a unity platform. We can see the kind of cabinet, shadow cabinet he's put together. Um, are they just bound to be disappointed that basically he's got no appetite for, for factional hardball? I think they're going to be... Certainly not at the moment. Yeah, they're going to be very disappointed. It, it seems to me like the the one bit of um, sort of fighting that he's going to take on about the past is he's going to fix the anti-Semitism problem. And everything he's done in those first few days from that first speech he gave um, onwards has been clearly intending to just suck that poison out. I think, what did he say? I'm going to grab it by the roots. And he's clearly going to do that. That is the one thing. Apart from that, it seems to me that his attitude is all about looking forward and not looking backwards at all. Um, Alex, dare I say it, that perhaps one of the reasons why some people are going, where's Yvette Cooper, where's Jess Phillips, is because these are, are well-known figures, uh, more well-known than, than, say, Annalise Dodds or, or Nick Thomas-Simons um, and many of the others. Um, but it is, it does, there is a sense of kind of um, a newness that's throughout a lot of the Shadow Cabinet, a lot of people that I've wanted to see in there, like Bridget Phillipson, for example. Who's exciting you? Who are you glad to see in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, a sense of fresh start, isn't it? Um, to, to be honest, um, I mean, we, what we were saying before about the Yvette Coopers and uh, uh, and uh, you know the Hillary Benz and the Chris Bryans that are absent from there, there could be a strategy there because these are people who have established themselves of, as very authoritative mm-hmm. voices mm-hmm. through their stewardship of the relevant parliamentary committees. And so it could, it could be that there's a strategy there actually to keep them in post. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited in many ways about the averages, if that makes sense. So not particular people, but I'm excited about the fact that there are five LGB 
openly LGBT people in their new cabinet, and there are zero in the Conservative side. I'm excited about the fact that this cabinet has mm. a wider age spread, while the age average is down from 60 to 50. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the, the number of women. I'm excited about the number of, uh, you know, people of color in there. And so, but the thing I'm most excited about is that it seems to me that this is not a heavily calibrated cabinet. Uh, I mean, for political gain, if that makes sense. It's a cabinet of people mm-hmm. who it seems... Uh, Starmer things are quietly competent and will do a good job in their brief. And they all seem to me like really safe people to put out to media. So so there won't be this sense that the sense of dread that that I've had for the last four years where, you know, some minister goes in the media and I'm watching from behind a cushion to see what the fuck they're going to say and how horribly it's going to be spun. You know, and that to me is a really exciting prospect, actually. Um, well, one criticism I did see was that it was a sort of Millibandish cabinet to the extent of actually having Ed Miliband in it. Um, but what struck me <laughs> that Labour has, has, has now lost elections, you know, as new, under new Labour, under the kind of Miliband soft left, under the Corbyn left. So really there's sort of no... There's no faction about which you cannot say, oh, well, you lost last time. So do you think yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that, that this is what um, Starmer is trying to do, is to actually sort of get beyond factions and sort of think of the talents? Because actually there are some people who I don't know even how to label. You know what I mean? I've come mm. to them because they're very, you know, they're very impressive, yeah. but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily staunch Remainers. They're not necessarily, you know... Corbynites or Blairites or whatever. They just appear to be good. And that seems to be a good take. I I mean, I I think what what I always say is that a new leader with a new cabinet, what they need to do is find neutral gear. So they need to find the space from which they can go in any direction, at any speed, on any policy. And I think this bodes well for that, if that makes sense. So, So there's not people in there that you can imagine will push very particular agendas in you know in particular directions it it's a sort of it's a sort of cabinet waiting to be explored and to come up with policy and that to me is actually quite good Fleur, talking of impressive people you backed Rosanna Allen Khan um, who's now shadow minister for mental health a deputy leader When the race started, she was relatively unknown. I think she was the kind of the, the outsider. But she ended up finishing second, established herself as a rising star. Um, how did she win over the membership? Yes, it's great to see uh, Rosanna there in the shadow cabinet and also Marsha Dilkotova, who are both neighbouring MPs of mine in the borough of Wandsworth. I've known Rosanna for many years because we were elected as councillors together in the same ward. So I did have a chance to get to know her before a lot of our membership did as she went around the country and did win people over. And she has a lot of what Alex has just been talking about, actually, about she's not from any particular faction. She just wants the best um, for all our communities and best for people. And she is able to connect with people very clearly. But also her background in the NHS gives her an excellent expertise um, and, and an excellent platform for which to, to be in opposition and to take on the government for, for their many failings for the NHS, which was a key part of the election and now more than ever will be a key part of what we talk about going forward. But how did she win people over? I think she's very um, disarming. Um, she speaks very, very honestly and uh, people just want to be on her side. So that's something we really need um, as a Labour Party. And I think she'll be an excellent Shadow Minister for Mental Health, which is such an important issue um, for now, as we're all sitting in our houses, isolated or, or with people we don't want to be with or just fearful about the future. It's going to be a, a very big topic to be covering. And, and, and she is, as Alex has said, and as many other members of the, the Shadow Cabinet are, very very competent, but also very, very able to take on as opposition MPs to take on the government as well. And Starmer said that the issue of EU membership is over for a generation, which is depressing, but 
probably true. Um, how can the sort of spirit and values of Remainers, you know, which, which did become a, a real movement, manifest itself in, in Labour now? Well, I think that's a, there was a, a really worrying part of the whole testing issue when we didn't join with others in Europe to take up a testing opportunity, wasn't there? And I think that that kind of issue, we have to be very careful to call out, to talk about our international values and how we now work with Europe. We have to be a country which doesn't um, become more isolationist. <laughs> After all this self-isolating, that's all we need. And we need to instead work out how we are going to work together with, with European countries and all those who will be having trade relationships with. Uh, I don't think it's over as an issue at all. In fact, there's so many chances in which we have to speak out of those who've got uh, this attitude of internationalist um, feelings. Um, well, so it's going to be really important, international trade. And also, it's always been mentioned already, is about this, this coronavirus crisis is going to hit countries around the world. Um, one by one, we'll see it like dominoes. We've, we're kind of early on, but there's going to be so much change across not only Europe, but also our relationships with um, developing countries and, and how this crisis plays out and what this means for our, for our economy, for our joint economy um, with Europe or in a different way, but also with, with other countries as we go ahead. So there's plenty for us to say. There's plenty that we have a voice together. We have values that we have in common. Um, and that there's, there's many ways in which we need to be active and vocal in the future. We'll be moving on to the EU um, aspect of the coronavirus crisis in a bit. Um, just wanted to say uh, a little farewell to the to the man that we have referred to in the past as a mysterious Labour spokesperson. Aww. I can I can now reveal to <laughs> listeners uh, that that was in fact Bye-bye. Seamus Milne. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was now a mysterious Labour ex spokesperson. <laughs> it's a much better title for him. I feel much more reassured Lord. by that one. Yeah. Now it's time for our segment, To the Barricades, where one of our regulars calls for listeners to stand at least two metres behind a noble cause. This week, it's Alex Andreu's turn. Um, so, in, in a departure from the usual... Um, to the barricades, I want to read to you a, a, a series of messages that I received from my other half in London, who is a key worker. I work in a bank. I'm not saving any lives directly, but I am supporting the community by helping people access their money. A lot of my customers don't have internet banking, some don't even have cards, and most of them are vulnerable. Our staff of 15 is now just four due to people being off as a result of this pandemic, so I feel I have to go in. There isn't a choice. I'm so angry and sad about the selfishness of people. I have to walk home from the station and either go through or around the park. It was nigh on impossible to social distance. And don't even get me started on my experience in the supermarket. Loads of people at the self-checkout area, the staff member just walking around, helping people, touching them, leaning over them, then just moving on to the next person. Going to work is scary, but I still go. What makes my anxiety worse, what makes me angry, what makes me feel ashamed, and what makes me really sad, is when I see so many people out and about who don't need to be. And his last message to me in this cluster was, I'm going to get it. It's inevitable. I just hope it doesn't kill me. So can I... I understand that a daily constitutional is actually essential to some people. It's not to everyone. So can I please ask people to think about what the minimum amount of going out of the house is that they can do because there are people out there who don't have a choice. And by, um, by doing basically as much as you're allowed to, rather than thinking, what's the minimum I could do, you are making it a lot more difficult for them. So that's my To the Barricades. Thanks, Alex. 
Next up, the EU has been discussing what can be done to help the countries most affected by coronavirus. Uh, to no avail, they've already relaxed rules and budget deficits and propped up the markets using the European Central Bank. Now a dozen countries in the Eurozone want the EU to issue debt or corona bonds to help countries in need, but Germany, most notably, is firmly opposed. Um, Ian, how would these bonds work? What's, what's the plan? Um, you know what? Can we can we can we just take a step back from that and actually talk about what bonds are? Because I think this is one of those words that people that people use, and not everybody has like a very firm grasp of, uh, of what's going on with them. I mean, basically, they're just they're just IOUs from a government. So when we say that the government borrows money, the majority of the time, the way it does is it publishes an IOU, and individuals or banks buy them. So basically, there's there's a couple of things in a bond that you want to look at. I mean, the first one is the maturity date, and the second one is the yield. The maturity date is just when do you get your money back? And the yield is basically an interest rate. So it's payment that you get um, for having bought the bond. So if you bought a £100 bond with a 10-year maturity date, you'd get the £100 back after 10 years. But in the meantime, you would get, uh, if it had a 10% yield, you'd get 10 quid sort of every year. So by the end of it, you double your money. That's the idea. Um, The problem that Europe has had with bonds is that, and especially the Eurozone, is that different countries are in different situations with their national finances. So Germany obviously has very strong national finances. Um, countries like Greece, like Spain, like Italy have, have suffered rather more. Um, there was a myth in the sort of early days of the Eurozone crisis that the reason that countries like Greece and like Spain struggled was because they were, they were particularly open to spending. And actually the reality is that was never true. That The reason that they got in trouble was because they had historic debts, mostly built up from the 80s and 90s when they came out of um, dictatorship. It wasn't because they spent an awful lot of money in the years immediately preceding the crisis. That was a myth. Um, It's proved very, very difficult in the European project to get taxpayers in Germany, for instance, to put forward money because they think, well, look, we're working very hard. Why should we get to take it and other people spend an awful lot? The idea behind the, the corona bonds and... Look, if that shit's going to work, they need to stop calling it Corona bonds because that sounds bad, and they need to just start calling it Euro bonds. <laughs> That's going to be the only mechanism in which this shit's going to work. Um, Don't put Corona in front of anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's something that you want to succeed, do not call it Corona or anything. That's that's a good yeah. communication tactic to adopt. Virus guilt. <laughs> Exactly. It does not sound like yeah, an ideal investment do opportunity. Um, so the idea is basically that you create a, jom- a joint bond for, for all of Europe, and that effectively mutualizes the debt. Now, look, obviously, this is the kind of thing that I, I like and that I think is a very good idea and that lives up to those sort of founding values of what Europe is about, solidarity, a sense of stability, that you do things better together than you will apart. And I would add to that that... If Europe responds to this, the way that it responded to the Eurozone crisis, it it is just detonating its own moral standing, and therefore it becomes an existential threat. However, we have to be clear that there are downsides to this kind of approach. One of the downsides is you are also increasing tension on the other side from the Netherlands, from Germany, when you do this sort of thing, because they are thinking, well, we're being taken for a ride here. Now, to me, that isn't as important, but you have to be careful as you pursue it to make sure that you don't transfer the problem that Europe will have to those countries who suddenly become quite alienated from the project on that basis. But it has been, I mean, because Germany, of course, uh, came in a lot of fire for the way that it was seen to treat the, uh, the Southern European countries uh, in that period you're talking about, uh, obviously including Greece. Um, now, according to the FT, the ECB said that one and a half trillion euro package of fiscal measures was needed. Germany, Netherlands uh, and some others only approved a third of that. Um, they don't seem overly concerned with their kind of um, their reputation in the rest of Europe, do they? They are basically taking the same role that they did before, which is just this it appears to me rather sort of... Um, resentful and guarded and, and um, at, at a time where basically it could sort of step up and show a different kind of leadership. W- mm. What is it? What is it with, with, <laughs> what is it with Germany? Like, I love Germany. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, 
<laughs> why is it why is it doing this well it's it's public opinion yeah. i mean this was the case throughout the eurozone crisis public opinion was powerfully against um bailouts and any kind and especially mutualization of debt and so what it was incredibly against it just thought look we we've been frugal which they hadn't by the way but whatever we've been frugal and why should we pay for someone else now it has to be said the part that we don't often talk about enough was also that german public opinion and the german political leadership were completely right about something else which was that the banking creditors had to take a haircut that they had to lose some of their money and that was one of the only solutions. On the French side, under Sarkozy at the time, and for French public opinion, there was opposition towards the banks taking a haircut, mostly because it was doing to destabilize their banking sector, but support for mutualization of debt. Basically, France and Germany both held two sides of the puzzle, um, but they weren't putting it together. And a similar dynamic is now starting to operate here. But it's not because of some great ideological. It's ultimately, when Merkel looks at it, these are the pressures that she faces as a political leader. It is German public opinion, and specifically the kind of public opinion that translates into votes for her party. Um, Fleur, Mauro Ferrari, president of the European Research Council, resigned on Tuesday uh, because some of his plans for coordinated scientific response were thwarted first by the ERC's own governing body, then by the European Commission bureaucracy. He complained about the lack of coordinated health care, financial support, border policies, and said, I arrived at the ERC a fervent supporter of the EU, but the COVID-19 crisis completely changed my views. Do you think this has become um, a sort of crisis for the legitimacy of the EU, that if it doesn't find some kind of big collective plan to help its members? Um, then a lot of them are going to kind of think, well, what's it What's it for? Is this a test that it, it, it can't fail? It absolutely has that potential. And it was so worrying to hear about that resignation. You think that this is the tip of something that must be so much bigger that we don't know about, that we will find about, out about in the future. We'll find out about ways in which they could have been cooperating better. They could have done um, things maybe faster or differently um, that we don't yet know exactly the extent of those arguments. And we really want to see the European countries clubbing together, managing this crisis together um, and keeping keeping stability there as well. And also not giving any sucker to the part to the anti-EU parties that are gaining ground and have been up to now. If this if this is they're seeing as their opportunity to to step up and, and speak out more and gain more votes, then that's going to be very worrying for the whole European project, which is definitely not what I want to see happening. So these are, the, and, and we just don't know yet how much money this is going to be either. So the, the fiscal bill has been estimated at potentially up to 5% of GDP. And that's based to me on a very worrying thought of two months full lockdown and six months of half lockdown. Is that's what the economists are saying. I don't know what half lockdown is, so that worries me. I don't know how much this bill is going to be and how much longer we're going to be paying it off. And if as well it undermines the EU, this just will just add more to our to our problems in the future. Alex, there's a great long read on Politico EU about Europe's model response. Explains sort of how issues that now seem a very long time ago, like you know, the exit of the British MEPs. Uh, on January 31st, the Turkish border crisis got in the way. Scientists uh, were plagued by sort of conflicting advice and working with weak data. Um, and then there were concerns about the politics and economics of a lockdown, which allowed the virus to spread, you know, allowing sort of various large-scale events. Ski season was apparently, um, at the beginning of March, was, was, was quite a big problem. You criticised the British government earlier, but you've read this piece. Do you think it shows several national versions of the same process with, you know, right-wing governments, left-wing governments, centrist governments, um, a lot of them making the same mistakes regarding dragging the heels. No, I, I, I think it, it shows a range of responses with a range of success. That's what it shows. Um, so I don't think... I don't think you can say that across Europe everyone has done badly. I don't think you can say across Europe everyone has done well. I think there is a fundamental flaw within the EU, and that is that because it is rules-based and consensus-based, it's slow-moving. So it doesn't react well to urgent crises. We saw that with um, the Crimea Invasion. We saw it with uh, the refugee crisis at the borders. 
it just doesn't do well with things that require an answer now. But what it is good at is reconstruction projects. And so, of course, what's going on in the world at the moment is testing every structure. It's testing the federal structure in the U.S., you know, that, that's much, much longer established. It will test everything. It will test our banking system. It will test economies. It will test the health services. It is testing every structure around. But I think sort of hot think pieces that say, ooh, this could be the end of the EU, both add nothing to the debate because obviously this could be the end of the EU. It could be the end of all sorts of things and also are premature because the EU comes into its own in many respects at what happens after the crisis. That is the point when everyone has cooled down a little bit, no one is thinking about protecting their own voters only, and they, get, they can get together and decide what they will do in order to reconstruct the economy going forward. And so we've sort of seen part one of this, which was the bit the EU was always going to be really terrible at. But there's part two to come in which the EU has a chance to be terrific. I think that's exactly right. And there's a whenever you see someone's piece of coronavirus will do X. Really, what X is, is not an assessment of what's going to happen. It's just an assessment of what they wish to happen. And that goes pretty much for all political commentary that I've seen so far on this issue. We are about to see something properly fucking seismic. And it's not now. Now, although it feels horrific, is actually the calm before the storms, before we see the kind of damage and impact that this would have done on economies. I mean, we're talking about Britain. I mean, I'm spending half the time, you know, checking in on what's going on in Guatemala. Like Guatemala, imagine what it's like for a country like that, okay, where your, your two main sources of income are tourism, which is completely stopped, and remittance payments from immigrants in the US. Now, most, you know, Guatemalan immigrants in the US are undocumented. So they don't get any part of any government scheme. They're not sending any money back. And Guatemala is indicative of many poor countries. It, it is about to get fucked to an extent that we can barely comprehend as a rich country, where we at least have the benefits of being able to talk about, you know, being put on furlough and, and being able to, you know, oh, maybe we'll get universal credit or something like that. Now, that's going to create a world situation which has the capacity to be very, very bleak indeed. If we see significant deteriorations of the material life in the developing world, that again turns into much larger flows of immigration, of refugees, and we saw what happened even just to Europe on the basis of that. And none of that even takes into account the economic impact on the West that will come from this. Now, in that situation, we're going to have to fight for our values like we have never fought before in a way that makes almost the Brexit fight look actually quite minimal next to what's going to happen because it's the exact kind of outcome in which you can easily see the rise of authoritarianism, of nationalism, of racism, of attempts to further destroy the institutions. And we're going to have to show that those global institutions work if we're going to be able to make that period survivable. It could also be an opportunity. We are getting the, the chance that we also had in 2008, but didn't take it. If there ever was a time for a debt jubilee, now is the time for a debt jubilee. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if something like this sweeps through the globe, the globe and affects every country, I think it's that sort of radical, um, uh, uh, radical solution that people will start seriously thinking about. It, debt jubilees, by the way, used to be really regular events until very, very recently. Basically, you got to a point where, uh, you know, I owed you so much money, I was never going to repay it, repay it, and you owed me so much money, you were never going to repay it, that we said, just forget it. You know, China's biggest creditor is the US. The US's biggest creditor is China. This debt cycle keeps ticking over and generating uh, sort of interest, really for no reason. And if something like this comes along, and in a really horrific way, wipes the slate clean, there may also be an opportunity for, for more innovative thinking, for more radical solutions to actually resolve the problems of the last financial crisis, which we didn't. 
Finally, let's talk a bit more with our guest, Fleur Anderson, Labour MP for Putney. Fleur, what's it been like finding your feet as a constituency MP in the middle of a national crisis? <laughs> well, it was very exciting to be elected. Um, mm. It was a very unusual election because all the way through, I always thought if we won in Putney, we would have won in nationally, we'd have won a Labour government. So it was a, and my campaign went very well. We, we, we had a very positive time in Putney. It went more and more um, towards Labour. Um, so I looked up at the end of the campaign and turned around to see that the country had gone a slightly different direction. And so to be going in without all those other candidates that I thought would be elected if I was, um, was very, very disappointing. Took me a while to get, uh, to get around that, get over that, and to work out what does an ep- opposition MP, a new MP do. So I'm still working that out. I've still got my, um, just recruiting my staff team who are great um, and we're working out now together how we work, but in different houses um, and doing a very different job from, from the first few weeks because that was all about learning how to speak in the house and getting my, ha- my head around all the different procedures, how <laughs> I get things done. That's all gone now. And now I am responding to a huge amount of different um, worries and concerns and things that I can change and influence because government policy is changing as it goes along. So I'm adapting. It just feels like another challenge um, that I'm really hoping I'm rising to. And I'm just so proud to be representing the community and speaking out. It's just a different way of speaking out. So we have cabinet calls, phone calls to the cabinet office in the morning, instead of being in the House of Commons. And we write a lot of joint letters um, and hope that by joining together, joining forces with other MPs, we can raise those issues, which are being felt and really affecting people across the country but it's just heartbreaking the emails that even today I'm getting emails from people who are saying I cannot keep my business going if I can't get a grant and I somehow fall between the the different rules I I cannot carry on what am I going to do Um, a lot of different a whole range of issues from health education mental health benefits and business it's everything at once and, so, and challenge, that's for sure. And you've had experience in the charity sector, um, which has warned the government that many smaller organisations may not survive this. And, and, and obviously a lot of those reasons are obvious, that people might not have as much money to donate. Charity shops are closed down. There's all these sort of different uh, kind of revenue streams that seem to have been shut off for them. Um, is there, uh, is, are there special measures to look after that sector? Really good question, because there aren't at the moment, and I am really concerned along with many other MPs and charities about the future. We're going to need our charities and our community organisations more than ever before. The value of being able to be a strong, resilient community has really been shown by the events the last few weeks. And yet charities, as you say, they won't have that revenue from charity shops or from foundations and trusts whose financial basis won't be the same or from um, activities that they had and that members and people going to their activities were able to provide money for, but they won't be able to come along. And that's a huge variety. So, for example, the Putney Arts Theatre in my constituency, it's got a fantastic youth scheme, one of the biggest in the country, um, but it has had to close up and is not able to get access to a grant. Although other small businesses of a similar size are able to get access to that. So I'm lobbying and asking the Chancellor if he could extend his business grant scheme to some charities that are clearly eligible and that that grant scheme is, would enable to continue, but are really facing, they, if they can't get that cash flow correct in the next two months, then they might not be around. And we need them more than ever before um, when we get through this and we'll be rebuilding our communities and wanting to be together. So it's a very worrying time for, uh, for charities, big and uh, small. No, it's a long way to the 2024 election. There'll be lots of times sort of conversations about um, um, what, Labour does to, to try and win post-Corbyn, post-Brexit. But what, did, what do you think made um, Putney the exception on such a disappointing night? Is, it, is there something particular about that, that part of the country? Like what, what made things go your way when they were going the other way everywhere else? We had a really, really strong positive campaign. We really stripped it down to a the few issues that people in Putney really cared about, one of those was, was Brexit, the last chance to stop Brexit. 
was a very, very clear message and it's what people wanted to see. And it trumped many other issues that they may have had about the different political parties. Um, also, I wasn't standing against a sitting Conservative candidate. So the Conservative MP had stood down um, because she was one of the rebels. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that was a factor as well. And we we just had so much support um, for for the campaign from uh, right across London, from so many different people who wanted to see a change. But that's true of other constituencies as well, where they didn't win. So I think it was it was a combination of many many factors that just came right in Putney. And I think I was there was a independent-minded um, female MP before, and I think that might be how I'm seen as well. Um, that helped. For people to to choose how to vote but um it was just a fantastic campaign really really enjoyed it um and and it's hard to even it seems so long ago now um but i think it also helps them <laughs> as an mp is finding my feet is because there's so many people who supported me and wanted me to be voted for so many emails start with i'm really glad that you're our, our mp so that is mm. that does really really help um, as i start and out and you wanted the current parliament to be the climate parliament. Of course, that did seem to be the, the emergency um, that yes. we hope that the MPs will be focusing on. For now, it's the coronavirus parliament, not, not its official name. Um, no, you're putting coronavirus parliament. Corona bonds. Even when the pandemic is over, the consequences will be with us for a long time to come. Is, do you think that in order to get other issues back on the agenda, they will have to be somehow tied to the recovery effort that if it just seems like for example the climate emergency just seems like a completely separate issue that there just won't be enough energy in the in the parliament or indeed in the public you know to, to get behind it does it have to be kind of tied into the greater recovery maybe it will have to be it, what it did seem to be that we had won the argument that this wasn't just an expensive nicety um, to think about the environment, but it was absolutely essential. And just as we got there, it now seems that life and death for our older family members is far more essential. And so there is an argument that we're going to have to go back and have. But also, there's an opportunity in this in that we're all thinking differently. We're thinking on a big scale about what the government can do when it really decides it has to. And that kind of emergency thinking might be something we also take forward after this as well. So there's definitely going to be different sides of this and um, uh, we mustn't lose the climate emergency as part of that as well. Because of course there's so much short-term thinking at the moment of necessity. Mm. Um, but yes, do, do, you, do you kind of have some ideas um, that, you know, sort of long-term ideas as to, I suppose, how this kind of post-corona uh, country um, you know, could, could, could improve, not just get back to where it was, but could introduce certain reforms. So there's a certain economic measures or things that you, that you think could be taken forward, perhaps even become permanent part of our kind of, you know, welfare system or safety net. It almost, seem, almost seems to be wrong to be talking about making something good out of this, doesn't it? A mm. but, I, but I do think that's a, that's a positive way of looking as well. And we, we have to, as we look at how, how resilient were we? How, did, how were we able to come together as community? And there's so many positive stories about neighbourliness. My road is more neighbourly now than it ever has been, and I hope we continue mm. to be. But far, mm. far bigger than that, what's the role of the state? Where were, where were we missing? What were the gaps? Who did we value? All of those questions are being held uh, um, across the nation, not by just a few people in Westminster or a few nerdy people who care more about politics than others, but everyone is having a different conversation now about what the government does or doesn't do and about mm. how much we value our health and how much we need to have our em employment and, and our rights. So these are conversations that are going to continue. So we have to be ready to have them in a way that helps our society to be better as we have to out of every crisis. And finally, I believe that you're involved in a kind of virtual sponsored run later in the yes, month. Yes, I am. How, Come to join me. How, yeah, how you, does, you can do it wherever you are. How does this, how does this work? So at the same time and place, I'm hoping that lots of people or I will do a run at the same time. So nowhere near each other. That's definitely not the plan. But mm. at 10 o'clock <laughs> on, on Saturday the 18th, we're doing a 5K run. For some people, that might not seem a lot. For other people, that will be a bit of a challenge. 
but oh. there's something about we're all separate so it's, so it's nice to do things together so we're doing zoom um, pub quizzes and we're doing this and that that's together and this is another way of being apart but together so several, lots of people are going to be running at the same time but also if you can't run please um it's a it's a plea to say thank you to our nhs workers and it's raising money for the nhs workers of st george's hospital and queen mary's hospital who I'm sure we all agree are just going beyond above and beyond at the moment. We're so grateful for them. I can't go in there and do anything medical, but I can show my solidarity and support and hope that others can as well by doing it. Brilliant. Thanks, Fleur. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. Every week we pick a person, animal, mineral, or abstract notion to be placed on a bridge, (laughs) on a bridge back to Europe. Um, to try and sort of rebuild those connections. Uh, Fleur Anderson, what will you be adding to the bridge? I'll put a bicycle on a bridge. I've loved cycling in Europe and I love cycling here and it's something that's so easy to do. So I'll put a bicycle on and hold out an extension of bicycling friendship. Brilliant. Thank you. That's the show. Thanks to Ian, Alex and Fleur Anderson, MP. Let's finish with our theme song, Demonism Monster by Corner Shop and special thanks to our latest Patreon backers. And a very happy Passover to any listeners who observe the festival. So it's thanks from me to Anne Esposito, Richard Hack, Paul, Aaron Duddy, David Swabby, Kate Wickham, and David Sargent. And a shout out from me to Peter Devlin, Jasper Alexander, Neil Ryan, Francis Ty, Stuart Weinstein, Grace Robson, and Stuart Smith. And thanks from me to Martin Cackett, Jeremy Bishop, Tanshira Arjunkit, John, Nell Chenere, Maximilian Queek, and Alexandra de Kaiser. Stay well. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandre and Ian Dunn. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is the Podmasters product.